We read from the Word of God, turning to the book of Exodus. We're turning this evening to Exodus 12, uh, beginning to read it, verse 31, and then carrying on into chapter 13. The firstborn of the Egyptians are struck down by uh, God uh, on that momentous night of the 10th plague. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites, go. Worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds, as you've said, and go. And also bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country. For otherwise, they said, we will all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs, wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed, to ask the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people, and they gave them what they asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians. The Israelites journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth. There were about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. Many other people went up with them, as well as large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. With the dough they had brought from Egypt, they baked cakes of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare food for themselves. Now the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years, to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. Because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt, on this night all the Israelites are to keep vigil to honor the Lord for the generations to come. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, These are the regulations for the Passover. No foreigner is to eat of it. Any slave you have bought may eat of it after you have circumcised him, but a temporary resident and a hired worker may not eat of it. It must be eaten inside one house. Take none of the meat outside the house. Do not break any of the bones. The whole community of Israel must celebrate it. An alien living among you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must have all the males in his household circumcised. Then he may take part like one born in the land. No uncircumcised male may eat of it. The same law applies to the native born and to the alien living among you. All the Israelites did just what the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me every firstborn male. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether man or animal. In the following verses, again, there's a summary of what's been presented before the regulations for the observation of the Passover. Then in verse 11, we pick up again after the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and gives it to you as he promised on oath to you and your forefathers. You are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey. But if you do not redeem it, break its neck. 
Redeem every firstborn among your sons. In days to come when your son asks you, What does this mean? Say to him, With a mighty hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed every firstborn in Egypt, both man and animal. This is why I sacrifice to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. And it will be like a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. An expression we often hear, maybe if you used it yourself, the waiting is the worst. The waiting is the worst. And that is true whether the event you're anticipating uh, is sad or happy, bad or good. There's a tension in waiting. Something you know is coming. And the tension grows. And it's difficult times you think, well, let's get on with it. Even if it's something hard, if it's something bad, at least you can start to cope with it once it finally arrives. And perhaps there's something of that uh, as we think of Israel in Egypt. Uh, The Lord had promised to deliver his people from bondage. In fact, the the first promise of deliverance from bondage in Egypt was given to Abraham back in Genesis 15. And that was given more than 500 years before the Exodus. And so there had been the promise And they weren't even in bondage at that point, of course. And then they were suffering the hardships of Egypt, the oppression of their taskmasters, and the promise was repeated, and Moses was sent. And Moses again brought God's promise that he would set them free. And yet it appeared there was no sign of the the fulfillment of the promise. God said he would do it, but when was he going to do it? And then the plagues, one by one, came And Pharaoh was letting them go. Then he wasn't letting them go. Nine plagues still at Pharaoh unmoved until eventually with the tenth plague, finally the time of deliverance had come. The waiting was over and the Lord was about to bring his people out of Egypt. And so we turn now to passage we read earlier, Exodus 12, verse 31, and running through chapter 13, verse 16. We'll take that as a, as a unit, and our title this evening, The Exodus at Last. We've been building up to it, preparing the way. Now, the Exodus at last. So what do we see in this portion of the Word of God? Well, the first thing that stands out in the record is the people liberated. The people liberated. Finally, Pharaoh capitulates. After the hardening of his heart, his resistance to the signs that God had given in the other plagues, he's reached his limit. And so verse 31, chapter 12, during the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. He can't wait any longer. The breaking point has arrived. And now Israel must be removed. Because in effect, 
Pharaoh drives Israel out. It's no longer the case that he will let them go. Pharaoh now wants to have them out of his land as quickly as possible. Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites, he says. No delay. Who knows what will happen if the Israelites stay in Egypt any longer? The firstborn are being buried, even as he speaks. And so he drives them out. But that should be no surprise to the Israelites or to us. Because the Lord promised that that's exactly what would happen. What had seemed so unlikely in the face of Pharaoh's hardness and his resistance, refusal to let Israel go, the Lord had promised way back chapter 6, before any of the plagues, because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out. That may have seemed very unlikely to the Israelites, and yet here it is, exactly as God had said it would happen. They will be driven out. It's possible that Pharaoh envisages Israel simply going a journey into the wilderness, worshipping God and returning. It's possible that's what was in his mind. Uh, go and worship, and that is all that he thought would happen. may have been naive to think that, and probably nobody else thought that, but it does seem to be in Pharaoh's mind, and his later actions maybe suggest something of that. But at every point in the record, as we've already seen uh, a number of times, the Lord is sovereign, and the Lord keeps his word. Nothing that God said would take place fails to take place. Everything is exactly as the Lord planned and decreed. You see, in verse 35, uh, the Israelites uh, were to ask for uh, articles of silver and gold and clothing, and they did that. And what happened? As God had promised again way back in uh, chapter 11 and verses 2 and 3, the Egyptians gave the Israelites anything they wanted. God had made them favorably disposed to the Israelites, we read in verse 36. They gave them what they asked for. It's not that the, the Egyptians were struck with liking for the Israelites and wanted to give them a gift. They just wanted rid of them. Anything the Israelites wanted, give it to them. Get them out. Get them away before the rest of our children start to die. But again, it's God is in control. It's God who is providing for his people. And the result, that striking expression that's used, they plundered the Egyptians. Here were slaves. Here were people in bondage. And suddenly when God acts, they plunder their captors. And they go out laden with possessions. Very likely, some of the articles that they took out of Egypt were used later on uh, in the construction of the tabernacle, if you read number 7. Uh, and some of what was given for the building of the tabernacle is probably taken from Egypt. Isn't that a, a wonderful irony of God's working? Uh, that here were the possessions of these pagan idol worshippers. And in the providence of God, 
That material is going to be used for the place of worship that God will establish for his people. If ever there was a symbol of the emptiness of Egyptian religion and the powerlessness of the gods of Egypt, surely that's it. And everything that happens that night when the tenth plague is poured out on Egypt underlines the fact that the gods of Egypt were empty, futile, pointless, and powerless. There's a very vivid description of the Lord leading out his people in the book of Numbers. It's God demonstrating his redeeming power and grace, because that's what you see in the Exodus, the power and the grace of God. This isn't some political liberation by Israel's power. They don't have any power. It's God who sets his people free. Numbers 33 and verses 3 and 4. So for the Israelites, they marched out boldly in full view of all the Egyptians who were burying all their firstborn. Of course, in that climate and culture, burial would be very, very quick. And the Egyptians are burying their dead, and the Israelites, massive numbers, march out laden with the plunder from Egypt, burying all their firstborn whom the Lord had struck down among them, for the Lord had brought judgment on their gods. That is precisely what happened in the tenth plague, the judgment of God on the gods of Egypt and a vivid demonstration to their worshippers that their religion was utterly futile. A testimony to the Egyptians and to the Israelites that the Lord is everything he claims to be, claims to sovereignty, to power, to fulfill his purposes are not empty claims, they are simple facts. He is all that he claims to be. And he delivers his people fully. When the Lord moves, the Lord accomplishes his plans and purposes. And nobody, nothing can stand in his way. It is a glorious assertion of the power and the grace of God. You see it in the provision he makes as they plunder the Egyptians They're slaves, but they don't go out empty-handed. They don't go out in poverty. They go out laden with everything that they could possibly need and more. And look at the multitude that God is leading out. It's not some little handful of people. It's a vast number. 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. There could easily be a couple of million of them. And that's led, of course, some skeptical scholars to say, oh, well, this is just made up. This is just imagination. There couldn't have been numbers like that. How would they have grown to such a number in 450 years? And where would they all have lived? But it is simply the voice of skepticism. God bless these people. God made them fruitful. And so there is a vast number of them. One of the reasons the Egyptians uh, were, were fearful of what the Israelites might do on occasion. 
vast number is led out, a testimony again to God's goodness and God's blessing on the Israelites. All the efforts of the Egyptians to destroy them and limit their birth rate and so on have come to nothing. And the fact is you cannot frustrate the purpose of God. The Egyptians learned it the hard way. And many others down through history have learned it the hard way. You can't frustrate the purpose of God. That's a wonderful reassurance for his people. This is our history. These are our spiritual ancestors. And their God is our God. And what we learn of him here is just as true today. He hasn't changed. Notice verse 42. The Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt. This is God's work. If the Lord watches over them and watches them marching out, he is setting them free. There's nothing about the Israelites that could have achieved this liberation. There's certainly nothing in the Israelites that deserved liberation. They're simply sinners. And the Lord has loved them and made them his people. It's the Lord's grace. It's an illustration, a very powerful illustration of the truth that, that Jonah confesses. Jonah 2 and verse 9. Salvation comes from the Lord. And that is always true. Yes, liberation from bondage in Egypt comes from the Lord. Ultimately, this is simply a picture of the salvation the Lord gives all sinners that he brings to faith in his Son. Salvation comes from the Lord. And the ultimate deliverance isn't from bondage in Egypt, and it isn't from the problems and the burdens of this life. Ultimately, it is deliverance from the bondage of sin. And it's God's mighty, gracious work. And that's encapsulated in the familiar words of Ephesians 2 and verse 8. It is by grace that you have been saved. That'll never change, and it can never change. Deliverance is by the grace of Almighty God. And you see a picture, a clear picture of that, as the Israelites are being led out of Egypt. The people are being liberated. One ominous note that we hear in these verses, that's verse 38. Many other people went up with them. Many other people. A mixed multitude the phrase often used uh, of all these others, uh, non-Israelites who went along with them. Why did they go? Maybe they thought it would be a better life. There may have been all sorts of motivations. But they didn't share Israel's faith. And this mixed multitude, these many other people, will before very long be the cause of a great deal of spiritual trouble during the journey in the wilderness. This great number who go along with the Israelites will not be a help to them. In many respects, uh, there'll be a serious hindrance. But more of that in due course when we get out into the wilderness on the way to Sinai. People liberated. 
But bearing in mind what we've been saying, we see in the second place the community defined. The community defined because if there is this mixture, if there is in this great multitude the Israelites, people who should be people of faith, but mixed in with them there is this large number of, we might say, hangers-on, then it is clear that lines need to be drawn. And the Lord very clearly defines who belongs to his people. Uh, The Lord sets the boundaries of the community of his people, who belongs and who doesn't belong, who is in and who is out. And God defines the community. God says who are his and who are not. And he does that here particularly by means of the regulations for the Passover uh, that we read about from verse 43 down to the end of chapter 12. Like what, what is the point of having this portion in here? The Israelites are, are heading for the Red Sea. They're leaving Egypt. And in the middle of it, we find a, a passage of regulations about the Passover. What is the point of having those verses there in chapter 12? They're not just put in to fill space. And the reason those verses are put in is to demonstrate clearly who belongs to the people of God. It's by means of the Passover and who is allowed to come and eat the Passover that God identifies his people and distinguishes them from everybody else. Really, this is God saying in a a visible way, those are my people and those are not. And it's God who says who belongs to which category. That's why those verses are there. God is demonstrating the boundaries of the community of his people. And it's done by means of the Passover. And so we read uh, verse 43, no foreigner is to eat of it. And maybe we step back when we read that and think, is that right? We're in a culture, of course, that is very uh, sensitized to issues of racism and any suggestion of one race being superior to another. And you read a verse like that and think, is that not racist? No foreigner is to eat of it. Is this saying the Israelites are somehow better than every other race? But that's not the reason for the command. It's not an issue of ethnicity. or What color are you, whether you can come to the Passover or not? It's not like the Mormon church where up until the 20th century, no black was allowed to be a priest in the Mormon church. This isn't an issue of racism. It's a spiritual issue. The issue is clear because the Gentiles can eat the Passover if they're circumcised. It is not saying that no Gentile can eat the Passover, but any Jew can. Gentiles who were circumcised could. An alien, we read verse 48, must have all the males in his household circumcised then he may take part. So 
Your ethnicity, your race doesn't exclude you from the Passover. So what does the regulation mean? Circumcision is crucial, isn't it? You can see that in these verses. Circumcision is the sign of God's covenant. It is the mark of his people and the males of his people. And the Passover is the meal for his covenant people. This is not a meal for anybody and everybody. This is a meal only for the covenant people of God. And circumcision was the mark of belonging to the covenant. It is a sign not of race, not of Jewishness. It is a mark of faith. And we mustn't misunderstand that. Many, even many Christians misunderstand that. Circumcision fundamentally is a mark of faith. That is how it's described in Abraham's case in Romans 4. And so circumcision is the mark of the covenant. It is the mark of faith in the God of the covenant. And so all those who take part in the Passover, who sit at the meal and eat, must share the faith of God's people in the God of the covenant. It's not for unbelievers. It is for people of faith. Faith in the God of the covenant. People who've received the sign of the covenant to demonstrate that they have that faith. And so the issue is not what color are you, what race are you, but have you received the mark of the covenant, the mark of faith in the Lord? And that's the dividing line between those who are in and those who are out. The issue is not Jews are in and Gentiles are out. The issue is those who have faith in the God of the covenant and who have the mark of the covenant are in. And those who don't are out. And that's the distinction that's being drawn at the end of chapter 12. It is the mark of faith in the Lord that's crucial. And those who have faith in the Lord and who are part of the covenant people may eat the covenant meal. And it's interesting how this is described because we quoted earlier, the Lord kept vigil that night, verse 42. And then do you see the second part of verse 42? On this night, all the Israelites are to keep vigil to honor the Lord for the generations to come. This is their side of the covenant where God in his covenant says, I will be your God. You will be my people. So God kept vigil to lead Israel out. I will be your God. And then year by year, as the Israelites sit at Passover with the Gentiles who've accepted the faith of Israel and been circumcised, they are God's people. It's the other side of the covenant. And that is the distinction that God is drawing here. The Passover, we know, finds its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. Very powerful words that Paul writes for us in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. 
So all of this is pointing us forward to what Christ, the Lamb of God, is going to do. The Lamb who's shed his blood for the salvation of Jews and Gentiles, people from every race. And when we sit at the Lord's table and we eat and drink, we are eating the covenant meal. And we're to be those who belong to the covenant people by faith. It's not a matter of our race or our color. It's a matter of the grace of God. The grace that brings blessing, as he promised to Abraham in Genesis 22, to all nations of the earth, blessing that comes through the seed of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. This is all part of our spiritual history. Here are pictures of what the Lord's going to do in Christ for his people. Here's a meal for the covenant people to eat. And it'll be fulfilled in the meal we as the covenant people now eat at the Lord's table. And remember God's grace, God's deliverance. And we demonstrate our faith in God as we eat and drink. God draws the line that distinguishes his people from all others. God sets the boundaries as to who belongs and who doesn't. And the issue that is decisive is do you have faith in the God of the covenant? Do you have faith in the God who delivers his people from bondage? And if you do, whatever your race, your background, your color, anything else, you're part of the people of God. You can eat the covenant meal and praise the God who set you free. And so the people are liberated. The, co- the community is defined. And then finally, as we move briefly into chapter 13, we have the firstborn consecrated. The firstborn consecrated. Beginning chapter 13. Consecrate to me every firstborn male. And the Lord spells it out further when we come down to verse 11, 12, right through to the end of 16. Clean animals were to be sacrificed. Unclean animals like the donkey were to be redeemed. Either a lamb was to be sacrificed or the animal was to be killed. You could choose whether you redeemed one of those animals or not. You had to redeem your sons. Of course, there was no question about that. The firstborn sons had to be redeemed. The redemption price had to be paid. All the firstborn belonged to the Lord. Do you see how important the firstborn is? There in the tenth plague, it's the firstborn. Now here, as Israel are liberated, the firstborn are center stage. They all belong to the Lord. The firstborn sons were consecrated to God's service. And if they were not to spend their lives serving God, if you needed them for the farm, if you needed them for family life, they had to be redeemed, they had to be bought back from the Lord. The redemption price 
had to be paid. And all of this dealing with the firstborn and God saying the firstborn belonged to me, of course, it harks back to what happened that night with the tenth plague. The firstborn of the Egyptians all died, animals as well as people. But what happened to the Israelite firstborn? They were kept safe. They didn't die, they were preserved, they were delivered. They were redeemed by the blood of the lamb that died in the household for the feast that night. Instead of the Israelite firstborn son dying, a lamb was sacrificed. The firstborn were redeemed by the blood of the lamb. And every year that'll be recalled in the Passover feast. And it's interesting. We're told, when your son asks you, verse 14, what does this mean? More than likely, the son who would be asking was the firstborn. You see the significance of that? The whole feast is about God delivering the firstborn by the blood of the Lamb. And the firstborn son stands up and he says, Dad, what does this mean? And he's told the story. He's told what God did to deliver these firstborn in Egypt. And the father is essentially saying, Son, you're here today because God delivered us by the blood of the Lamb. And that's why you're here to ask that question tonight as we celebrate Passover. God delivered the firstborn. The firstborn belong especially to him. There were tokens that the whole nation belonged to the Lord. Do you remember back in chapter 4, God said, Israel is my firstborn son. Every Israelite belongs to God, but the firstborn son was like a token, a representative for his whole family. And when the firstborn would say, what does this mean? The story that was told was the story of a lamb that died, blood that was shed, a firstborn that was spared judgment and death. All speaking about a gracious, loving God. A God who had set Israel free from bondage and they would never be allowed to forget it. Every year, as they sat at Passover, they'd be reminded of the grace of God. They'd be reminded of what the Lord has done for us. And the foundation was the blood of the Lamb that was sacrificed. And of course, it all points us to Christ. It points us to the Lamb of God whose blood saves us. The Lamb of God we remember at the communion table. That's why we're there. Why can we sit at the Lord's table time after time? It's because of the grace of God that brought the Lamb to die and shed his blood to save us. And we'll never be allowed to forget it. And we never want to forget it. It's the blood of the Lamb that saves us. And so again we have pictures of what Christ will be and what Christ will do. 
Interesting, Hosea 11, verse 1. God says, Out of Egypt I called my son. And the first thing we think of, the first thing an Israelite would think of was this. Exodus from Egypt. Out of Egypt I called my son. And that's true. But then you turn to Matthew 2 and 15. And we have a quotation of those words from Hosea. Out of Egypt I called my son. And how are they fulfilled? They're fulfilled in the return of Jesus from Egypt with his mother and father, where they'd fled to escape the anger of Herod. And Jesus is brought back to the land where he will live and die and provide salvation. Out of Egypt I called my son. This is the beloved son. This is the eternal son. This is the one who provides deliverance from sin. The lamb who sheds his blood for our salvation. And so these chapters are full of gospel. They're full of Christ. Because they point us so clearly to the Savior. To the lamb who shed his blood. To the firstborn son of the almighty. And the one who saves us and makes us the people of God. And the one we remember every time we sit at the feast of the covenant. The Lord has delivered his people in the exodus from Egypt. The Lord has delivered us from our sin and our lostness and our hopelessness in the work of Christ the Lamb. The feast was for those who had faith in the God of the covenant. We need to make sure we're not depending on anything external, our family, our denomination, our congregation, any of those things. They'll save nobody. Is your faith in the God of the covenant? Is your faith in the God who gave the Lamb to shed his blood for sinners? If your faith is in him, you belong in the covenant people of God with all the blessings of being there. If your faith is not in the Lamb, then you've no part in those blessings. It's an issue of eternal life and eternal death. That's how big a matter it is. Make sure your faith is in the God of the covenant, the God of the Lamb and the shed blood because there's salvation nowhere else.